If you have one of these handouts, tonight's actually the last sermon that we're going to be on this topic of the doctrine of God. We've looked a number of weeks now. This is the seventh sermon looking at the doctrine of God. We've we've considered the God who creates, uh, the God who decrees, the God who upholds. Looked at a couple parts of that. Um, the God who works miracles. Last week we looked at a God who is holy. And now this week, the God who loves. And so it's not an exhaustive study, but we're looking at different elements of God, how God is is working and how we can see him working through scripture in our own lives. And so tonight we finish it off with the doctrine of God, the God who loves. God is love, right? God is love. And as we as we consider that topic, it should be like, well, yeah, we know that. The world knows that. Why, why are we devoting a whole sermon to the topic of a loving God? Because everybody knows that God is love. You go out in the street this afternoon, you ask someone, you know, do you believe in God? Yes. Uh, what's he like? He's love. He's a loving God. Everyone believes in a God of love. It doesn't matter what religion they say they are, even, even if they're agnostic. Is there something up there? Maybe, but I knew if, if there is something up there, then, then he must be a loving God. So where does this idea come from? That people in our society who even aren't religious have this idea that God is a God of love. In fact, the first of the famous four spiritual laws is almost universally accepted in our society. These four spiritual laws is the tract that was popularized in the last number of decades. And the first law in that tract says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now this goes across and people can say, yeah, they can agree to that. God loves me. And so why do people think like this? Why do people have a perception, even if they're not Christian, even if they don't go to church, why do they have a perception that God is a loving God? It must be because Christianity, like the rest of the world religions, are all the same. They all believe in a loving God, right? No, it's not true. Uh, if you consider the, the, the major world religions like Buddhism and, and Hinduism and Islam like, and Confucianism, all these different, even pagan religions, they, they must have some kind of concept of a loving God. For people to have this, have this idea out in the street that God is love. But as you look at some of those different religions, it's simply not true. Buddhism, for instance, doesn't even believe in a personal God. A God even, God even capable of loving or being relational at, all, relational at all. It teaches us to love. Love is an action of a person, not anything belonging to God. So this concept of God is love is not a Buddhist concept. Hinduism has a plethora of gods and goddesses, and people have a variety of opinions what they are like, but, but a God who is, who is the creator and loved this world and made this world in love is, is simply just not there. Islam speaks of God's mercy, but if you speak to a Muslim about personal God, a God who, who loves you and is a heavenly father and, and, and wants a relationship with you, they would think that's completely inappropriate. That's, almost, that's bordering blasphemous. That's making them uncomfortable to describe God, the transcendent God in that terms of loving relationship with creation. What about the ancient religions and beliefs? All these animism and other beliefs that, that people have across the world and that have they've been practicing for thousands of years. Well, they believe in gods, the plural of gods that have created this earth or perhaps have, have come out of this created earth. And these are gods of war. They battle one another. They're hateful and vindictive and they, and they offer sacrifices and they burn incense and they, and they put all these things in their windows to, so the gods wouldn't be angry with them because gods are, they're hateful and, and they're angry all the time. You need to appease them. And so as we see, this God who is a God of love 
is something that's completely devoid in all the major religions of the world. It's only through Christianity and through the teachings of the scripture that we know that God is loving God. Well, maybe it's through nature. Maybe nature, that's where people understand how God is loving. You know, we look out the window and we see beautiful scenes of nature. Maybe people perceive a God who is loving because nature is so beautiful. But as we look out the window, we realize that there's wars and there's rape and there's hatred and there's murder and there's terrible suffering. And so by by looking out in nature, you're not going to assume that God is a loving God. By looking at the major world religions, you're not going to assume that God is a loving God. So where do people get this idea that God is love? And again, it's from the Christian scriptures. It's from the Bible that explains to us that God is love. It's from the Christian church and the remnants of the church's influence on society that people have in their head that God is a loving God. It's only in Christianity that God is a God of love who's created this earth out of love and who desires a relationship with his creatures and who sent his son out of love to this earth to redeem us, to die in our place, to reconcile us to himself, to bring us to himself because of his great love. What I want to do tonight is look at God's love. It certainly is peculiar to the Christian religion, certainly is peculiar to what we have in the scriptures. And we're going to look at a number of questions about God's love. First one is, what is love? Okay, what is love? If you're following on your handout, we're about halfway down the middle of the page, first page, what is love? You know, how, does, how does the world define God's love? Well, the world may define God's love this way. God is unconditionally loving and he would not judge anyone. Okay? So loving God is seen as a God who is not going to judge. Certainly not going to send anyone to conscious eternal torment in hell. That wouldn't be loving of God. And so this is the way our world defines love. Love accepts you just the way you are. Doesn't ask you to change. Doesn't judge you. That's our society's, I think, by and large, view about love and a God who, who loves. Now, as we've seen, the only place that, that we know of a God who is loving, like people have the preconceived notion, is found in the scriptures. And so the Bible testifies to, testify to us that God is loving, and the Bible also testifies to us that God judges and that he does condemn people to hell. The same, the same scripts, the same, same texts of Holy Scripture that tell us about a loving God also tell us about a God who judges. How can we reconcile those two things together? How do we reconcile a loving God and a God who would send people to hell who do not come to him in saving faith through the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we put those two ideas together? Well, people love their freedom as they perceive it. Okay, people love freedom as they perceive it. The Bible says that people suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they reject God. They reject true God and they make a God of their own imagination or worship another God. And they do this because they do not want to honor and give thanks to the one true God. That's what the Bible says. But we deceive ourselves and we suppress the truth because people love their freedom. They don't want to be accountable. They don't want to submit to God, the creator. And so C.S. Lewis said that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. I don't agree with all of his ideas about hell, but I think in this point, he's correct by understanding that the human uh, soul wants to be free of God, does not want God's authority in their life, do not want to give thanks or worship or to honor God. And so hell is that place where they 
get what they want, in a sense. There is no one, as the Bible describes, there is no one who is cast into hell and they cry out, no, I'm sorry, I've changed my mind. No one. Oh, I, I, I take that back. I, I wish I could come to you now. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I've made those mistakes and now I want to enter your paradise. There's no um, inkling of that found in the scriptures. In fact, people continue to to assert their rebellion of God even in the afterlife, even in hell. They continue to hate God. They continue to suppress the truth of God. They continue to not want to give honor and thanks to him. Okay, this also helps us understand. People say, well, how can, how can someone perish in hell for an infinite eternity for only a finite amount of sins? They've only done a few things on this earth and they're going to perish in hell for all of eternity. Well, they don't stop sinning. They don't stop hating God. They don't stop rebelling against God. They don't stop shaking their fists against God. The same heart desire that they have here in this earth of not wanting God is the same heart desire that they have in hell. It hasn't changed. In fact, it's only going to get worse and get more hardened. And the rejection of God is going to grow and grow and grow. God's judgment is seen in Scripture as giving people their own desires. Romans one twenty four, when it talks about God's judgment, it says God gave them up to their own desires. He let them have what they want. You want an existence without God? You want an existence without submitting to God? Well, you're going to get what you want. That's what the Bible says. And you're going to experience a horrific existence apart from any grace or mercy, kindness of God perishing in hell. So the God of love and the God who would send people to hell is not contradictory. Because God loves what is good, he therefore hates what is not good, what is wicked. Same way, you love children. And you would hate for anything to happen to a child. And so you hate anything that would harm a child. The same way with God. God loves and he hates, but his hate flows from his love for what is good and for what is righteous. So what is God's love? How would we define God's love? It's written down in your sheet. I'll read it for you. It says, his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures, okay, humans, God's love is his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. Okay, it's a a self-sacrificial love. That's what love is. It's not loving because you're going to get something in return. Rather, God loves self-sacrificially, unselfish concern for the well-being that leads him to act on our behalf for our happiness and for our welfare. Look at different aspects. We're going to look at different aspects of God's love. The first one you're going to see at the bottom of page one is God's Trinitarian love. Okay, so we have to use our brains for a second here. God's Trinitarian love. Now, what do I mean by God's Trinitarian love? I mean that God is love, and God has always loved from eternity past. He's always been loving. It's not something that He started to do once He created this world. But between Father, Son, and Spirit, there has been love, an infinite, eternal love between Father, Son, and Spirit. We're going to see that in Scripture. Look at Matthew 3.17. It says, And behold, a voice came from heaven said, this is when Jesus was being baptized. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John 17.24, Jesus prays and he says, Father, I desire that they also 
whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 14, 31, but I do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the father. And then first John four, eight and 16, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. God is love. He's always been love, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is why when you have a God who is a false God, like Muhammad's God, the God of Islam, you see an unloving God. Because the God of Islam didn't have a relationship, didn't have a way to express love eternally. If he loves... It's only going to be because he has now created this world that he's come into contact with his creatures that he's made and so he can express love. But it's not an eternal attribute. It's not an infinite attribute. But we have in the scriptures with a triune God, with Father, Son, and Spirit, we have love between Father and Son and Spirit lasting infinitely and eternally. God's always been loving. Whether there was a creation here or not, he's always been a loving God. And so we see that here in the scriptures. So unique. And it's true. This is the one true God. This is important to understand. The second thing I want to look at. I want to ask this question. When we look at God's love for all, does God love everyone? Okay, God's love for all. Does God love everyone? Okay, we're going to, we're going to look at uh, God's love displayed in our Lord Jesus Christ in a moment. But we've looked at God's love in general, this Trinitarian love, love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Then we have to ask this question, does God love everyone? You know, we, we have statements in Scripture that Jesus laid down his life for the church, loves the church, loves his bride, loves the body. But does God love unbelievers? Can we, can we say to a group of unbelievers, people who are shaking their fists at God, can we tell them that God loves them? Is it okay to say that out on the street? To say God loves you? Is it okay? I would say yes. I would say yes. But that statement can create some confusion. So I want to look at some text first and we're going to come back to this topic of can we say God loves you to every single person. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8. This is back in the Old Testament. God speaking to Israel, a mix of believers and non-believers. And it says this in Deuteronomy 7, 6, and 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people the Lord set his love on and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here we have God saying he loves the nation of Israel, a mix of believers and unbelievers. Okay, maybe not convincing. Let's look at Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Jesus again speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now here Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 16. You are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or you are to be holy as your father in heaven is holy. And how is he applying that? You ought to love your enemies. That's the point. You've heard it said, you've got to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I say to you, you need to love your enemies. And why? Because you're going to be like your father who is in heaven, who loves his enemies, who gives them rain, who is good to them, who is merciful to them. And so we ought to love our enemies. And so does God love the enemies, his enemies? Does God love unbelievers? He sure does. Should we as well? Yes, we should. Not only that, we have John 3, 16. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Here, God loves the world by sending his son into the world so that if anyone believes in him, they will escape judgment and rather receive eternal life. Now, this, this world here in John 3, 16 cannot be narrowly interpreted, be understood the world of the elect or a subset of the world. This is talking about the world. For God so loved the world, he demonstrated his love towards the world by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. There is a genuine call to the, go- uh, to the gospel that goes out to all the world. We preach the gospel not just to those who are the chosen. We don't know the chosen. We don't know the elect. The gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And as the gospel goes out, the grace and the love of God are going out. And the gospel call is anyone who turns to the Lord Jesus Christ can be saved. Anyone who turns from their sin, who trusts in Jesus Christ with with all their might and with their mind will experience forgiveness of sins, will be saved. There's a genuine call that goes out to the gospel to the entire world. And this is God's love. By sending his son. This is not just a, a hypothetical provision in terms of this offer of the gospel. It's a genuine offer that if anyone turns from their sins, they will find mercy and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and they will be saved. Now, at the same time, we need to be careful that we don't neglect the high priestly role of Jesus Christ. Because not only do we have a universal offer of the gospel that goes out, but we have a particular love of Jesus Christ, particularly in his high priestly role, where he guarantees the salvation of his people. It's not like his his love just goes out and, and he hopes that some would respond to it. No, he guarantees that his people will come to him. And how can I say that? Look at John 17, 9. Jesus here praying the night before he's crucified and he says, I am praying for them, those whom the Father has given him. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have, 
sorry, for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. As Jesus prays as the high priest, and as he goes in to offer that sacrifice and to bring his blood to that heavenly altar, he prays for those whom the Father has given him, and they will be saved. So how do these things come together then? How do, how do we say God loves everyone, but yet Christ has died for his people? Now, his, his office as the high priest is, is exclusive for his people, for his sheep that he laid his, down, has laid his life down for. How do we bring those two things together? Well, God loves his church. Just like a father loves his son, Christ loves his church as a husband does his bride. Christ loves his church as a person does their own body. Now, husband loves his wife differently than he loves other women. You know, I could say, um, without any, any degree of just, ooh, that's weird. I could say, I love the women here at Fairview Baptist Church. I don't love the women the same way I love my wife. That would be weird. That would be wrong. Okay? But I can love the women in this congregation. But I'm not going to love them in the same way that I love my wife. In the same way, too, God loves everyone, but yet he loves those who are his, his sheep, his church, differently than he loves the world. Look at Acts 14, 16 and 17. How does God love the world? Acts 14, 16 to 17. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How does God love everyone? By sustaining us, providing for us, giving us food, giving us rain. All these things are a demonstration of God's love, giving us gladness. Now, God's love here serves a purpose for his own glory and also to lead people to repentance. Look at Romans 2, 4 and 5. It says, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness or his love is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here we see God's goodness. Here we see God's love. It's meant to lead us as a human race to repentance, to recognize his lordship, to recognize his goodness and his grace. We would see he is a master that we could submit to, and we can honor and we can worship. But yet we see so many reject God. And that, that goodness and kindness and love that God has shown to them rather will be their judgment, their condemnation, because they've rejected and spurned the love of God. The last thing I want to look at tonight as we consider God's love, page number three is God's saving love. God's saving love. We see that God loves the world and God loves his people in such a way that he would save them. As we're going to look at God's saving love. <clears throat> this is what we think about when we think about God's love, don't we? About God's saving love. 
This is what the Bible is so concerned about from beginning to end. It's about the story of redemption. It's about God's love for his people, God's work of redemption, God's love in his Christ, sorry, love in his son, Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible is about, God's saving, redeeming love. John 3.16, we've already read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 15.13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus said that when he was still living, knowing full well what he was about to do. Lay down his life for his friends. And if you're here tonight as a Christian, Christ laid down his life for you. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a love of God in the death of of Jesus Christ while we were still sinners. First John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest, made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation, this, this satisfactory atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's a love of God. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's that verse saying? How do we know God loves us? Because God sent his son to die for us. And if God sent his son to die for us, how will he not graciously give us all things? How will we not know that sanctification is going to be complete? How do we not know that that this world is going to be redeemed and we're going to experience a new heaven and new earth that cannot be worth comparing to what we experience right now? Because God sent his son to die. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were dead. We were sinners. You see God's love, not because we were worthy, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it. It's the exact opposite. We were enemies of God and he loved us, sent his son to die in our place. Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. And this love is not something new. This is before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So how do we respond to this? Okay, there's, there's three responses that I have here that I want to go through as we respond to God's love as revealed in Scripture. But before we even get to those three responses, the first thing we need to do is believe in this God of love. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him with our life. Trust the love of God. Trust our life to Him, our life service to Him, and not just our life, but our death. Trusting in Him that He will fulfill His promise and forgive our sin as we come to Him, as we trust Him. So let's look at three responses. The first one. Our response to God's saving love. First one is we trust him. 
giving our lives for his service. Okay, we trust him giving our lives for his service. Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith, by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, why, why does he live for Christ? Because Christ loved him, gave himself for him. So we give our lives in service to Christ. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us or constrains us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How do we respond to God's saving love? We trust him and we serve him. We give our life for him and to him in loving service and devotion. The natural response for the great love with which we've received. The second response, we are expected to imitate his love. Okay, we're expected to imitate his love. It says this in Ephesians 5 two: walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. To love. This is what we're called to do. To love just as Christ loved us. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're called to imitate the love of God. First John three sixteen. by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers to sacrifice for one another. That's the love that we're called to, self-sacrificing. This is radical Christianity. You know, I said this before, being a radical Christian is not going and, and blowing yourself up and try to destroy and to maim others, but it's rather it's giving yourself for the good of others. That's Christianity. That's radical Christianity, loving the way God loves. First John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. This is our response. Imitate his love. Matthew 20, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a great truth. Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, what does he call us to do? Be like that. Live to serve. Live to give your life for the sake of others. Imitate the love of God. Third response. We are to suffer well. We are to suffer well, die to sin, live to righteousness, just like our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to suffer well, die to sin, Live to righteousness just like Christ. First Peter 2, 21 says this. For to this you have been called. And he's, it's in a passage talking about suffering. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, imitate him in his suffering. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Because of the love of God and because of the work of Christ, we're to die to sin, live to righteousness, suffer well. The fourth response, meditate on the love of God. Meditate on the love of God. That's what we're called to do as we consider God's saving love, to meditate on it. Ephesians 3, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a challenge that is for us. This is going to be our lifelong pursuit to know the love of God. If this is boring to you now, it's not going to get any better. We need to, to treasure the love of God. If you have not experienced God's saving love in your life, this is going to seem so foreign to you that you would want to dedicate your entire existence to exploring the depths of God's love. God has loved us, wretched sinners that we are, by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die in our place so we experience forgiveness of our sins. No more guilt, no more shame, to live with Him forever and ever in eternal joy and bliss because He is there. That's the love of God for us. And that's what we're going to explore for all of our lives. Let's meditate on God's love tonight and together for all of eternity. Let's pray.